Section 6 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 2, Part 2. English history usually affirms that the Queen, terrified at the mobs which surrounded Whitehall, yelling for Strafford's head, implored Charles to give him up and save her and her children, and that he signed Strafford's death warrant in consequence of her feminine fears. The Queen ought, however, to be heard in her own defense, and she declares it was a procession of the bishops which shook the King's resolution, as these prelates represented that it was better one man should die than the whole realm perish. Henrietta so frankly acknowledges in general her erroneous conduct that there is nothing to hinder her from doing so here. If she had felt herself betrayed by her feminine fears, for terror at the sight of a howling mob is no disgrace to a woman, the truth is Henrietta's faults arose not from want of courage, but from loquacious communication. The assertion of the Queen's pusillanimity being entirely founded on palace gossip, we believe that Henrietta has been confounded with the Queen of France, her mother, Marie de Medicis, who was domesticated with her at that period, and was exceedingly frightened at the violence of the revolutionary mob. Strafford, continues the Queen, himself sent to entreat his royal master to sign his death warrant to appease the insurgents, expecting, doubtless, that he should be pardoned when their first rage was over. But as soon as his enemies had the king's signature, without heeding the royal commandment to the contrary, they hurried the victim to death. The more public was his death, the more was seen of the grandeur of his mind and his admirable firmness. He spoke uncompromisingly to his enemies, and in spite of their barbarity, he forced them to regret him, and tacitly to avow that they had done him injustice. It has been asserted that the royal friends, for whom Strafford sacrificed himself, were indifferent to his fate, but these are the actual words of the queen. The king suffered extreme sorrow, the queen wept incessantly, they both anticipated, too truly, that this death would, sooner or later, deprive the one of life and the other of all happiness in this world. Let no one, after this, say that the high-minded Strafford fell unpitied, a victim to the selfish fears of the queen. In the midst of these awful scenes, the princess royal, a girl of ten years of age, was espoused in person at Whitehall Chapel by the son of the Prince of Orange, a boy of the age of eleven, a truly Protestant alliance, which ought to have given the country great satisfaction. This marriage took place May 2nd, 1641. The day after, the mob broke into Westminster Abbey, pillaged it, and did all the mischief with which revolutionary mobs generally amuse themselves, yelling all the time for Strafford's death, who was executed May 12, 1641. The Queen's mother, Marie de Medicis, was so infinitely terrified at the violence of the insurgent mobs at this crisis that she insisted on departing forthwith to Holland. This queen was a marked person by the insurgents, they excited the popular wrath against her by every invention within the range of possibility. The means by which they effected this purpose may be guessed by the following proceedings of the House of Lords. August 26, 1641. The House have committed to prison the man that printed the scandalous ballet concerning the Queen's mother going away, and will consider a further punishment. They have ordered that these ballets, or ballads, 
be burnt by the hand of the common hangman. Lord Arundel, the Earl Marshal, escorted the Queen's mother to Dover by the orders of the King. Nearly at the same time, when she bade farewell to her mother, the Queen was obliged to part from the King, who commenced his journey to Scotland, August 9, 1641, when he abolished that episcopacy, which he had recently shaken his throne to enforce. He traveled so rapidly that by the 15th, the queen received a letter from him announcing his safe arrival in Edinburgh. Her majesty instantly sent the tidings to the royal secretary, Sir Edward Nicholas. Her letter in broken English is a curiosity. Queen Henrietta Maria to Sir Edward Nicholas. Maester Nicholas, I have received your letter and that, or which, you sent me from the king, which, or who, writes me word that he as, or has, been very well received in Scotland, and that both the army and the people have showed a great joy to the king, and such that they say was never seen before. Pray God it may be continued. For the letter that I writ to you, counseling the commissioners, it is them that are to dispatch business in the king's absence. I thank you for you care of giving me advices of what passes at London, and so I rest, your friend, Henriette Marie R. Oatlands, the 19th of August, endorsed for Mr. Nicholas. The manor and mansion of Oatlands had been a favorite dower residence of the Queens of England for several centuries. The ancient building was originally built in the lowest part of the domain for the vicinity of a plentiful supply of fish for fast days and a stagnant water for replenishing the moats and fosses which defended such habitations were the chief recommendations of the site of a castellated dwelling in the middle ages the old palace of oatlands was leveled with the dust in the civil wars in common with every other dwelling to which queen henrietta was particularly attached here the queen was residing with all her children, excepting Charles, Prince of Wales, who often visited her from Richmond or Ham. The Parliament, which either could not or would not be prorogued till the end of October, busied itself exceedingly regarding the queen's residence with her children, and testified the utmost jealousy of her confessor, Father Phillips, who underwent several examinations, and many portentous hints were dropped by the roundhead orators in the House of Commons, respecting the queen's establishment of capuchins at Somerset House. The storm of civil war, meantime, was growling and muttering around. Its first symptoms among the middle classes were indicated by large bands of people of eighty or a hundred in company mustering together and hunting down the king's deer in the daytime in Windsor Forest and even attempting the same incursions in the demesnes of Oatlands. Sir Edward Nicholas came to reside at his house within three miles of Oatlands Park for the convenience of the royal correspondence. The king's plan of signifying his approbation as to the events going on in England and in his family was to send back the letters of his secretary with his opinion written on the margin. The queen is often mentioned in these notations. The king usually mentions her by the appellation of my wife. As for instance, he writes to Nicholas, your dispatch I received this morning, but tell my wife that I have found fault with you because none of hers was within it. Many measures are discussed in this correspondence which were likely to incur the displeasure of the queen. Among others, the faithful secretary advises the king to obviate the discussion of the Capuchins at Somerset House in the ensuing sessions of Parliament 
by sending them all away before the attack commenced. Perhaps the secretary thought this measure was as well to take place when his royal master was out of hearing of the queen's lamentations and remonstrations. The king was dubious on this head. I know not what to say, he wrote in this letter, if it be not to advertise my wife of the parliament's intention concerning her capuchins, and so first to hear what she will say? It was by no means likely that the queen would say anything reasonable. That elegantly worded but mischievous letter of her mother, already quoted, was the code on which she always acted in regard to her religion. The utter downfall of her husband's dignity and the reign of her family, according to the principles she imbibed from it, were to take place before she would give up the least particle of the Roman Catholic observances that her obstinacy could preserve. The consequence was that the establishment of Capuchins remained till about a year afterwards, when the infuriated mob destroyed every vestige of the chapel. The queen at this period fancied that she obtained very valuable information from her first lady of the bedchamber, Lady Carlisle, regarding the proceedings of Lord Kimbolton and Mr. Pym, two leaders of the Roundheads, who governed those committees of the Lords and Commons, which exercise extraordinary power during the recess of Parliament. Lady Carlisle was on terms of extraordinary intimacy with both these agitators, but instead of communicating useful intelligence of their proceedings, she betrayed to them every incident that occurred in the royal household, which the queen soon after found to her cost. Being yesterday at Oatlands to attend the queen's command, wrote Sir Edward Nicholas to the absent king. Her majesty gave me this paper enclosed, with command to send it this day to your majesty. It was brought to the queen by Lady Carlisle, who saith she had it from Lord Manville. I confess it were not amiss to have it published. The nature of this paper is not mentioned. It was probably some attack on the queen, or measure regarding the royal children's residence with her. The treacherous spy, in order to obtain more credit with her royal mistress, had given this small piece of information on a subject which was to be public in a few days. Both houses of Parliament met before the King's return, and discussed the fact of the frequent visits of the Prince of Wales to the Queen. And though, wrote Sir Edward Nicholas, the Commons assert that they did not doubt the motherly affection and care of Her Majesty towards him, yet there were some dangerous persons at Oatlands, Jesuits and others, and therefore it was desired that the Marquis of Hertford should be enjoined to take the Prince into his custody and charge, attending on him in person. This resolution was delivered yesterday at Oatlands by my Lord of Holland to the Queen, who, I hear, gave a very wise and discreet answer to the same, as I believe, her own pen will speedily acquaint your majesty. The answer that the queen made to Holland was, that the Prince of Wales merely visited Oatlands to celebrate his sister's birthday. This is not the only instance in which the Earl of Holland appears, in the reality of documentary history, in a displeasing light to Queen Henrietta, he is, in fact, usually found acting in direct opposition to her will, despite the assertions of Horace Walpole, who, having clinked a coarse rhyme that he thought peculiarly wounding to the reputation of Queen Henrietta, deemed himself bound to prove his idle words by twisting every possibility of scandal into a serious charge against her. About the same time, the Queen's confessor, Phillips, was brought before the House of Commons as an evidence to enable them to convict Benson, a member of Parliament, 
of selling protections to the miserable Catholics. In England, be it observed, that every species of persecution, besides its other more apparent evils, formed opportunities for bribery and robbery. Father Phillips would not be sworn on our translation of the Bible, and the house, instead of allowing him to take an oath which he considered binding to him, commenced a theological wrangle, and eventually committed him to prison, for contempt of the scriptures authorized in England. In this exigence, the queen sent a sensible and conciliatory message to the houses of parliament, saying, that if her confessor did not appear to have done any wrong against the state maliciously, she hoped, for her sake, they would forgive and liberate him. The House of Lords complied, but the House of Commons refused him bail. The Queen says in her own narrative, that the Parliament sent to her that she must surrender her young family into their hands during the absence of the King, lest she should take the opportunity of making papists of them. And here it is proper to observe that from the best authority, it is certain that the queen had, at an early period, tampered with the religion of the Princess Mary, her eldest daughter, having secretly given her a crucifix and a rosary, taught the use of them, and made her keep them in her pocket. Probably ambition had a share in this furtive proceeding, because as a Protestant, the Princess Royal could only match with a petty prince. The matrimonial destiny of the child was now decided as the spouse of the Prince of Orange, therefore less occasion existed for religious jealousy on the part of the Parliament. Most likely, Lady Carlisle had given information of the Queen's conduct to Kim Bolton and Pym. The Queen, unconscious of the spy that was about her, replied to the Parliament, that her sons were under the tuition of their separate governors, who were not papists, and above all, she knew that it was the will of her husband that they should not be brought up in her religion. To remove all cause of complaint, she left Oatlands and withdrew to Hampton Court, from whence she came occasionally to see her little ones, and thus gave up her constant sojourn with them. Then her enemies raised reports that she meant to leave the kingdom and carry off her children. They sent orders to a gentleman who was in the commission of the peace at Oatlands, to hold himself ready with a certain portion of militia, called by the queen, paysans armes, to serve the king according to their orders. For, among the other anomalies of this revolution, almost to the last, all measures in opposition to the king were enforced in his own name, to the infinite mystification of the mass of the people, who were mostly well-meaning, though unlearned. The parliamentary order to the Oatlands magistrate commanded him and his posse to wait till midnight in the park at Oatlands, where they would be joined by cavalry, whose officers would direct what they were to do. The magistrate immediately sought the queen, showed her his order, and declared his intentions to obey her commands. She thanked him warmly, but told him that she wished him to do exactly what parliament dictated, and then to remain tranquil. Meanwhile, without raising any alarm, she sent promptly to the principal officers on whom she could rely in London, who were absent from the army on furlough, and she entreated them to be with her before midnight, with all the friends they could muster. Then she summoned all her household capable of bearing arms, not even excepting the scullions in her kitchen. Without showing any inquietude, she proposed to spend the evening in Oatlands Park, where her muster arrived and joined her party. The night, however, wore away, without the threatened attack from the adverse powers, save that about twenty horsemen, 
on the road near the park, were seen prowling around, and watching till daybreak, but these, perhaps, had only hostile intentions against the deer. There is no doubt, but that the queen would have done battle in defense of her little ones, if need had been for such exertion. The family, which the royal mother was thus personally guarding, somewhat in lioness fashion, by nocturnal patrol round Oatlands Park, was numerous and of tender ages. They were soon after separated, never again to meet on earth in their original number. Charles, Prince of Wales, was then just eleven years of age. Mary, the young bride of Orange, was ten. James, Duke of York, between seven and eight. Elizabeth, about six. And the little infant Henry, but a few months old, who had been born at Oatlands the preceding year. The queen continued her precautions against the abduction of her infants. She had regained the cooperation of Goring. A somewhat doubtful policy, considering the instability of his conduct and the falsehood of his word. She told him to hold himself ready at Portsmouth, and that perhaps he would see her very soon at that place, for the purpose of embarkation, to which, nevertheless, she would not have recourse but at the last extremity. The queen likewise sent to her new ally, Lord Digby, and entreated him to send her all the friends he could muster, and on whom he could rely, to remain in the neighborhood of the seats where she and her children were abiding. This was immediately done, to the amount of one hundred cavaliers. Then she took the opportunity, when at Hampton Court, of paying a visit to a loyal gentleman who lived in the vicinity, who was noted for the number of fine horses he kept. He put them all at Her Majesty's disposal. After the queen had made all these preparations, no enemy appeared to attack her or her infants. On the contrary, the Parliament offered the most elaborate excuses for calling out the militia at Oatlands without the king's sanction, and every member of the House of Commons thought fit separately to deny that he was concerned in it. The two following letters, from the queen to the king's secretary, were written at this crisis. They are composed in broken English, which she then spoke. The Queen to Sir Edward Nicholas. Maister Nicholas, I am very sorry that my letter did not come time enough to go. I have resaved yours, and I have writ to the King to hasten his coming. I send you the letter, and if little Vil Murray is vel enough, I would have him to go back again to Scotland, without coming here, for a vood, that is, without coming here, for I would, have him go tomorrow morning, tell him from me, but if he were not well, then you must provide somebody that will be sure, for my letter must not be lost, and I would not trusted, or trust it, to an ordinary post. I am so ill provided with persons, that is with persons, that I dare trust, that at this instant I have no living creature that I dare send. Pray, do what you can to help me, if little Vil Murray cannot go, to send this letter, and so I rest your assured friend, Henriette Marie R. For yourself, 10th of November, 1641. The Irish rebellion broke out the same autumn with one of those atrocious massacres which are the usual consequence of a long series of civil strife and religious persecution on both sides. The Roundhead Party, founding their accusations on similarity of religion, accused the Queen of having fostered the rebellion and encouraged the massacre. Not one particle of real evidence has ever appeared to support these calumnies. In fact, it was a deadly calamity to the royal cause, and the queen ever deemed it as such. 
it was a Celtic rising, in the hopes of breaking the chains of their enemies, while those enemies were quarreling among themselves. There was scarcely a name among the homicides, but what began with a Mac or an O. The king, after a long stay in Scotland, began in his homeward dispatches to give preparatory orders for his return to his southern metropolis. The Earl of Essex, who at that time filled the office of Lord Chamberlain, received orders to prepare the palaces for his royal master's reception, which orders were rather pettishly communicated by Her Majesty through the faithful secretary in this little billet. Queen Henrietta to Sir Edward Nicholas. Maester Nicholas, I did desire you not to acquaint me Lord of Essex of what the king commanded you touching his coming. Now you may do it, and tell him that the king will be at Tybalt's, that is Theobald's, Wednesday, and shall sleep there. And upon Thursday, he shall dine at Malor Major's, that is the Lord Mayor's, and be at Whithall only for one night, and upon Friday, will go to Hampton Court, where he mains, or means, to stay that winter. The king commanded me to tell this to my Lord Essex, but you may do it, for their lordships are two great princes, now to receive or receive any direction from me. Being all that I have to say, I shall rest your assured friend, Henriette Marie R. For Maester Nicholas, 20th of November, 1641, endorsed. The queen to me to signify to the Lord Chamberlain. The king actually did return five days after the date of this letter, November 25th. He was received with extreme loyalty in England, and was greeted everywhere with cries of, God save the king. The queen flattered herself that she had done wonders towards effecting this reaction by her gracious conferences with the Lord Mayor and other well-disposed magnates of the city. She accompanied the king with all their children at his solemn entry of the metropolis. The prince, her son, rode by the side of his father, and she followed in an open carriage, surrounded by her infants. They were all received with the most fervent benedictions from the populace, and with every mark of good will that could be testified. The king, who had in Scotland obtained full proof that five of the most factious of the members of the House of Commons were in treasonable correspondence with his rebels there, resolved to take advantage of this gleam of popularity to go to the house and arrest them. His predecessor, Elizabeth, had often sent and taken obnoxious members into custody while actually in the House of Commons for very trifling offenses in comparison. History insists that Henrietta had, by taunts and reproaches, urged the king to the arrest of the five members, as she most piteously blames herself for the error she really committed, to which she, with deep humiliation, attributed all his future misfortunes, even his death. We cannot help thinking she would have been equally candid if such a charge were true. It has been shown that the queen bestowed a great share of her favor and affection on Lady Carlisle. This person had as bad and treacherous a heart as ever deceived a parent or betrayed a friend. The queen would have had better companionship with the French ladies, whose friskings had so much offended the dignity of King Charles. It was in company with this lady that Queen Henrietta sat in her cabinet at Whitehall, with her watch in her hand, counting the weary minutes of the king's absence, when he went to arrest the obnoxious members of the House of Commons. No one knew his intentions but the queen. He had parted with her on that fatal morning, with these words, as he embraced her. If you find one hour elapse without hearing ill news from me, you will see me, when I return, the master of my kingdom. 
the queen remained with her eyes fixed on her watch till that tedious hour had passed away meantime she heard nothing from the king and she was prompted by her impatience to believe that no news was good news therefore deeming the king was successful she broke the silence that was pain and grief to her with these words to the fair carlisle rejoice with me for at this hour the king is as i have reason to hope master of his realm for pym and his confederates are arrested before now unfortunately lady carlisle was at the same time the relative and political spy of one of the members named she had certain reasons for believing that the blow had not yet been struck although the hour had elapsed she promptly gave intelligence to one of her agents and as the house of commons was close to whitehall palace the persons marked for arrest had intelligence just before charles entered the house they fled while their party rallied and organized a plan of resistance under plea that it was against the privileges of the commons for any member to be arrested while on duty the king had been accidentally prevented from entering the house of commons to carry his intentions into effect by various poor miserable persons who presented petitions to him as he was about to enter the hour he had announced to the queen as pregnant with their future fate had passed away in reading and discussing the particulars of individual wrong and misfortune an ancient duty of the english sovereign when on progress to his parliament not then obsolete this the king did not consider himself bound to waive in preference to his somewhat illegal errand for he knew that his intent of arresting his enemies was when he left his palace a profound secret between himself and his royal partner and he suspected not that the secret had escaped her the whole incident is a noted instance of the danger of opening the lips regarding diplomatic affairs till there is indisputable conviction that a deed is done it would have been well if henrietta had heard and heeded the warning axiom of countess tursky in wallenstein regarding the portentous nature of shouts before victory when henrietta found as soon as she did that her heedless prattling had done the mischief she threw herself into the arms of her husband and avowed her fault blaming herself with most passionate penitence not a reproach did he give her and she paused in her narrative in an agony of regret to call the attention of madame motteville to his admirable tenderness to her for never said she did he treat me for a moment with less kindness than before it happened though i had ruined him directly after the occurrence which the queen termed her malarus indiscretion the people mutinied in london from which the king retired with all the royal family when they left whitehall they went through a multitude of several thousand roundheads every one held a staff in his hand with a white paper placard whereon was inscribed the word liberty henrietta herself with her usual petulant vivacity had previously given the name of roundhead to these opponents in opposition to the flowing lovelocks of the courtiers the partisans of the parliament had their hair clipped so close and short that their turbulent heads looked as round as bowls excepting that their ears seemed to jut out in an extraordinary manner samuel barnardston a noted republican of that century was in his youth the leader of a deputation of london apprentices for the purpose of communicating to parliament their notions regarding civil and religious government the queen who saw this posse arrive at whitehall then first noticed the extraordinary roundness of their closely clipped heads and saw at the same time that samuel was a personable apprentice 
upon which she exclaimed, La, what a handsome young roundhead! The exactness of the descriptive appellation fixed it at once as a party name. Roundheads they were called from that moment, and roundheads they will remain while history endures. Many a satirical ballad and chorus repeated the sobriquet, nor were the jutting ears forgotten. Captain Hyde, a cavalier of the royal guard, proposed cropping into reasonable dimensions the ears of the next deputation which arrived from the city on the same errand. Rather a dangerous experiment, that of cropping ears, which stuck out by reason of the superfluous destructiveness of the owners, especially when those owners had the majority in numbers. Few of the Puritans, says a lady author of that day, wore their hair long enough to cover their ears, and the ministers and many others cut it close round their heads, with so many little peaks, as was ridiculous to behold, whereupon Cleveland, in his hue and cry, describes them, with hair in characters and lugs in texts. From this custom of wearing their hairs, continues the Republican lady, the name of Roundhead became the scornful term given to the whole Parliament party. The rest of the appurtenances of these stalwart agitators is described by another contemporary. In high-crowned hats, collar bands, great loose coats, and with long tucks, or swords, under them, and calves' leather boots, they used to sing a psalm and drub all before them. When at the end of the struggle, the laws and liberties of England fell under military terror, the roundheads assumed a regular livery of war, and Cromwell, when he had need of their assistance to expel the commons with their speaker, or doom the king, used to coax his troopers by the endearing epithet of his red brethren. The king and queen went no further than Hampton Court. There they determined to watch the event of these insurrections, not having the slightest idea that the least restraint would be put on their personal freedom. They were deceived, for the Parliament sent a circular to all the nobility to arm and prevent the king from going further. In this extremity, the queen proposed to her royal husband that she should depart for Holland, on the ostensible errand of conducting the little princess royal to her young spouse, the Prince of Orange, but in reality, for the purpose of selling her jewels, to provide her consort with the means of defense. It was astonishing to her with what avidity the opposite party seized on the idea of her departure from England. Every facility was given her for putting the project in execution. Such was the Queen's own impression. But Lord Clarendon declares that it was intimated to Her Majesty that, if she did not prevail on the king to permit the law, excluding the bishops from sitting as peers in the House of Lords, the Parliament would interfere to prevent her from going abroad. Consequently, by her influence, the king permitted this act to pass by commission while he was escorting Her Majesty to Dover. Such was the state of affairs when the king conducted his consort and daughter to the place of embarkation at Dover, February 23, 1641-42. He stood on the shore, watching their departing sails with tearful eyes, doubtful whether they should ever meet again. As the wind was favorable for coasting, the queen declares, her husband rode four leagues, following the vessel along the windings of the shore. Party malice may stain the name of this unfortunate prince with venomous invective, yet to every heart, capable of enshrining the domestic affections, the name of Charles must be dear. But not with his bereaved spirit and troublous career does our narrative at present dwell. We must embark with his adored Henrietta. 
merely observing that at her departure the king went to theobald's where the parliament sent a petition that he would be pleased to reside nearer to the metropolis and not take the prince away from them the king went directly after to new market and from thence retired to york during the queen's absence the fatal adventure at hull occurred where sir john hotham first denied his majesty access to his own town and military magazines the queen was well received in holland by henry prince of orange which indeed she well deserved since she had warmly espoused the cause of his country against the tyranny of richelieu the burgomasters of holland nevertheless showed no great veneration to her royal person they entered her presence with their hats on threw themselves on chairs close to her stared at her from under the brims of their dutch beavers and flung out of the room without bowing or speaking to her the result proved that henrietta exerted in the exigence of her affairs the good sense and governing science of her great father for one by one she fascinated all these boorish behaved republicans and utterly and entirely obtained her own way in proof of which walter strickland who had been deputed by the parliament ambassador to the states of holland to forbid their granting any assistance to the queen was dismissed without effecting his purpose king charles would not have succeeded so well he could not have concealed his displeasure and disgust at the coarseness of ill-breeding but the feminine tact of henrietta revealed to her the well-known axiom in diplomacy that after republicans have gratified their self-esteem by showing their ill behavior to their heart's content they become particularly amenable to the charm of graceful and courteous manners generally pertaining to persons of exalted rank the dutchmen notwithstanding their odd mode of showing their regard behaved bountifully to queen henrietta their high mightinesses at rotterdam lent her forty thousand guilders their bank twenty five thousand the bank at amsterdam eight hundred and forty five thousand of merchants at the hague fletcher and fitcher she borrowed one hundred and sixty six thousand on her pendant pearls she borrowed two hundred and thirteen thousand two hundred guilders she put six rubies in pawn for forty thousand guilders and altogether raised upwards of two million pounds sterling the queen was one year in effecting this great work during this time she sent valuable remittances of money arms and warlike stores to her royal husband who had raised his standard at nottingham soon after her departure and commenced the warlike struggle with some success at least wherever he commanded in person End of section 6.